Well, we're back after a short 18-month hiatus. Frost Kirsman is back with its fourth episode, I think. Oh, shit. All right. Uh, wow, more than I thought. Seven episodes. Seven, number seven. Lucky okay. number seven. Yep. Uh, we're talking today about a couple of recent films that deal with the uh, the legacy of communism as a broad concept uh, through the lens of historical reenactment and dramatization. In cinema. Cinema. We see films. Yes, absolutely. We don't see movies. We see films. No. In fact, the first one we're going to be talking about was in four languages, something like that? Far too many. A ton. That, that's my main complaint. <laughs> <laughs> so, too, much, too much globalism in this. It was pretty, I mean, it was a pretty... It was a pretty blatant bit of cultural, literally cultural. This was actually cultural Marxism. If you yeah. want to yeah. wonder what the hell people talk about, it's mostly an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. But you watch the film we're talking about today, and it's literal cultural Marxism. The film being Raoul Peck's The Young Karl Marx, mm-hmm. which is a genuinely perverse film because it situates the budding bromance between Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and their their uh, ro- their specific romances, uh, uh, Carl with his wife, uh, Jenny Westphalen, and uh, Engels with the firebrand Irish factory worker Mary Burns and her mm-hmm. sister. Yeah, that's how he. That was only alluded to. Yeah. Well, also the, the also Lynch and the maid was just kind of mentioned. Yeah, yeah. There's this, just she's like, just sort of sitting there. She's a little Chekhov's gun for the sequel. That's uh, the thing, though, is that like this was we were talking about. This is for the real Marx heads. Oh yeah, there's all these little things in the movie that you're not going to get unless you are uh, have read at least one terrible Marx biography, and without them, they just are sort of things that happen. But yeah, one of them is the maid, who you know if you yeah. know about Marx that when they move to London, he's gonna he's gonna knock up mm-hmm. and then have Engels take credit for the paternity of the kid. Yeah. That actually probably would have been a funnier movie. Actually, what we mostly spent talking about this movie is uh, just how many other more interesting slices of life they could have chosen. Oh, my God. They really picked boring shit. I was kind of thinking it would be kind of, um, you know, soap opery. Yeah. And they would focus on, you know, maid and partying and uh, maid impregnation, partying. Yeah. Um, affairs with sisters and whatnot. Yeah. No. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that they took this thing, this the the, the emergence of of Marxism as an ideology in the in the conversations and actions of these two men, and put it in the most bourgeois artistic framework possible, which is the gray looking middle brow BBC style adaptation, mm-hmm. like 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 Middlemarch or something. It was very difficult to watch. Um, them trying to create tension and um, indicate the passage of time with orchestral music over someone scribbling. Yeah, there's a lot of montages of people writing things. Yeah, but the thing is, they did do cool things, and not just it, you know, it didn't have to be like you know, uh, sensationalist or or sexed up or anything. I mean, yeah. there was a few, you know, kind of Benny Hill moments where he's running from creditors. They run from the creditors. They run from the, the police at one point. They get kicked out of uh, Paris. So there is some sort of, there are action moments broadly construed. It actually there's opens. There's titties. W- yeah, there's some boobs. Uh, it, action, it opens with an actual action scene because the beginning of the movie is when uh, Marx is at the first newspaper that he sort of helped co-found and, and write for that was shut down by Prussian authorities when he stood up in inflammatory fashion for the peasants who were being uh, persecuted for collecting dead wood on noble lands. And he tells this, over him reading the article is images of these put-upon peasants having their heads caved in by the local constabulary on horseback. For picking up sticks. For picking up sticks, yes. And that's sort of like the primal scene of, of injustice that sort of, generates all of the, the the thinking on how to solve these horrible social inequalities and injustices. Uh, so it p- starts off with the first scene is him getting yelled at by his editors for writing the thing, and it kind of feels like they're going, Marx, you've gone too far this time. Your renegade ways are going to get us all in trouble with the mayor. Turn in your quill. <laughs> uh, but McGarnacle like, gets results. Yeah, fuck you, buddy. I do what I want. And then he just yells at these guys about how they're a bunch of dumbasses and they don't have any good theories and they're just... They're just talking vague bullshit, which is 
very true to life. And one thing that the movie gets very much right is that it's largely Marx criticizing and insulting other socialists. Yeah. For not being, not having a theory, not being smart enough, just basically being a bunch of sort of addle-pated uh, uh, do-gooders. Uh, also, uh, he, he fat-shamed. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, they left out that specifically, but then another another moment for the the real uh, motherfucking Marx heads out there is like they introduced Proudhon, yes, who was very much a moralist, yes. moralist yes. anarchist. Yeah. And the thing is, he was so nice. He's adorable. <laughs> he meets Proudhon. Proudhon is very nice to him. First thing he does is heckle him. His first yeah. encounter with Proudhon is heckling him from the audience of a speech. But then they meet him, and he's nice to him. So and nice. They interact. And then it's one of those things where if you know your marks, you're sort of watching it like, oh, hell no, uh, is they give there's a scene where he gives Marx and Engels copies of his book, uh, the, the philosophy of poverty. And they're like, I hope you enjoy it. And you're like, oh, hell no, because it, the real Marx said no, that they wrote a, a scathing denunciation of the thing that uh, Marx in typical dickhead fashion called the poverty of philosophy. And the next scene is them hawking it at a at a, uh, a labor meeting. So yeah, he's just mean to this nice guy who uh, is very wrong. Yeah, he's well. That's the thing. Totally is that, wrong. Is that the one? And th- he was fat. Yeah, and the thing you get though through the whole thing of him being pricks to everybody is that it's true. Everybody who he's criticizing, and the entire kind of concept of socialism as it was burbling up uh, in the ferment of the industrial revolution of the mid nineteen hundreds was very much formless. It was basically, this is not right and it should be different. And Marx's clarion call throughout the entire movie to everyone who he sees and yells at and insults is, that's not good enough. There needs to be a theory behind it. And we need to focus on articulating it in a way that people can understand. And people get very mad at him throughout the course of the film, but at every turn they're just like damn it Marx I'm so mad at you but you get results yeah that pamphlet was so goddamn good we just have to keep you in this organization the man could write a pamphlet I did think one of the strong things about it is that it dealt with the fundamental antagonism between Marxism and anarchism and anarchism being a kind of um, sense of of communal brotherhood and Marxism recognizing that no there is a capitalist class that by its very nature is a in direct conflict with the working classes. And uh, he pushed back against the all men are brothers thing. Yeah. Um, which was like extremely, I mean, there was this super kind of churchy move towards, um, you know, uh, a, a fellowship of, of poverty and sort of liberal values or whatever. And uh, Marx and, and Ingalls too, uh, were, were, pretty upfront about the fact that it's like no 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 they don't want to be your friends yeah they want to exploit your labor yeah they, there's an irresolvable conflict of interest between classes that can't be resolved through other any other form than the overthrow of class as a concept and that's what he's talking about the whole movie and the, everyone's getting their feelings hurt multiple scenes of him yelling at people and then them storming out of the room but then him writing something that everyone just has to agree is too good not to recognize it's too damn good uh, the, 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 so the real through line of the film from a character perspective to sort of fill out all of the yelling is the budding friendship between Marx and Engels. And they have a classic meet-cute at the beginning where <laughs> they meet in Paris and their first words are sort of like, hey, fuck you, buddy, you're being a rude dickhead. That's, you know, Engels says that and he's like, dude, sorry, but, you know, I'm, I'm strutting right here. I, I don't have, I can't hear you. But, uh, one thing that was very credible is, is that they basically cement their friendship by uh, complimenting each other's writing. Yeah. Like they sit down. Well, after- and it was, it, was, it was such a fucking corny like movie oh, yeah. moment too where he was like, I've read your book. You want to know what I think? Yeah. I think it was amazing. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> That's it, yeah, because it starts... Engels, the condition of the working class in yeah. England is one of the greatest works on yes. the subject. Yeah, because they start off, they're yelling, they're kind of like snipping each other in a, in a sort of a parlor way. Then they sit down and have a drink, and Engels just gushes all over Marx, but in a very restrained German way, it just mm-hmm. says, you know, you're a genius, this work is brilliant, you're the greatest social scientist of your era. And then Marx goes, you know what, I think of your book. You want me to be honest? And then there's a nice yeah, pause. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> it's genius. By the way, I just want to say I looked it up and I messed it up. Uh, 
he didn't call Proudhon fat. He called him all kinds of other things. Yeah. He called Bakunin a monster, a huge mass of flesh and fat, and is barely capable of walking anymore. To crown it all, he is sexually perverse and jealous of the 17-year-old Polish girl who married him in Siberia because of his martyrdom. He is presently in Sweden where he is hatching revolution with the Finns. Which hatching revolution with the Finns is uh, also an insult. Like it's included as being like he, he put like revolution was sarcastic yeah. in that. Good luck getting the Finns to do anything. Marx was a hard hater is what oh, we're trying time, to get at. Big yeah. time. And uh, but it was he, they cast the guy, the guys who played Prudhon and Bakunin were not very large no. so that wouldn't have worked he could they have were not it in the movie. sloppy uh, yeah. you know amphibious looking people yeah. as as yeah. as Bakunin and Proudhon were they also had oh one of the best characters uh uh white white yeah it was Weitling Weitling yeah Weitling yeah he was another guy who was who was a competing voice in socialism and he would give these huge stem winding speeches to big crowds of workers and they would all love them but he was totally an insane person and deserves his own uh, like biopic, yeah, because he was a complete psychopath. He also like apparently invented a machine that did like uh, button sewing or whatever. Yeah, like he was definitely like a a practical human being. He was also actually poor. Yeah, and grew up like in horrible destitution. And he was like sort of a, a preacher for the working class, but also like just like a, a wild, unpredictable idiot. Yeah, and according to this film. Marx literally ran him out of the socialist movement just by owning him in, yeah. a, in a meeting. Yeah. He just yells at him and says, you don't have any theory. You don't have anything besides your piety, you dumbass. And he just leaves. He was and he's not super seen for pious. again in the rest yeah, of Yeah, he was super pious. And, and <laughs> he was definitely annoying. And they did a really good job at playing him as like a subtle, um, like a zealot and like a street preacher. Yeah. But... Also, extremely cool character from history. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, all those early socialists were very fascinating characters. In their I think own he was right. a Fourierist. Yeah, one of those doofuses. Yeah. Well, that was one of the big. The Fourier was like one of the big currents that Marx had to sort of push against, and that was all based on sentiment. Yeah. Fourier said uh, he was he was an extreme logic guy. Uh, he uh, said. Oh, they're like, how will garbage pick handle pick up be handled under socialism when it's a job that no one wants to do under like this his kind of weird agrarian socialism? And he says, let little boys do it. They're <laughs> filthy. Just let children do it. It's fine. They they love it. They fucking they love, love it. They love garbage. Um, he also said that everyone I think would get there would be um like a, a social prostitution class that would. He said, uh, I, you I think the he said, he on your side he if said you brought a, that out now. A special, a special, uh, like group of, he said, particularly amorous and benevolent individuals. <laughs> so the it girlfriend was like battalion. U- UBI, f- but, but for sex. Yeah, you just got all the Pepe's on, si- on your yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. Outright has just all switched to Fourierist socialism. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you after. Know what? The, I can deal with that better. So after be they're friends, after they become friends, they go out drinking and they're talk late into the night and then. In the funniest scene in the movie, they're puking in an alley. Yeah. And while they're puking in the alley, Marx formulates his 11th thesis on <laughs> Feuerbach, where in between Blork's, he goes, <laughs> You know, Engels, in the history of philosophy, they've sought to understand the world. But the what, point, if, what, what if? What if they changed it? And, that and is, then it's like, yeah. he broke the fourth wall and they both looked at the they, camera yeah, they and might grinned well. and like put on sunglasses <laughs> and it was like, ting. Yeah. And that, that I mean, there are, all, there are moments strewn throughout that sort of wink at Marx's uh, classic Marx quotes, but that is the most blatant one. Yeah. That's the sort of the, the funniest moment where they just really break it. That's when it. they're they're playing to the cheap seats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which we appreciated in our own dumb delight. Yeah, the it was way funny. we appreciated uh, uh, Proudhon handing yeah, oh, the book yeah. and being like, like "Let, I can't wait to hear what you have to think about." Yeah, we, we we were like, "Oh hell no!" When he said that, we're like, "We know what he's gonna think. He's not gonna like it." He doesn't poor guy, like it. Poor guy. And you're so nightly, nice. His nice chin strap beard. He's about to get owned so yeah. badly. Poor guy. So and then the movie splits between Marx being poor as hell. Dodging creditors in Paris, and then Brussels after he gets kicked out of Paris, mm-hmm. and then Engels working for his dickhead father at their Manchester factory, 
and falling for Mary Burns mm-hmm. and and basically putting up with the needs of being a bourgeois piece of shit in order to sort of fund the lifestyle of uh, of Marx. He even literally said like I don't think this is right. And Marx was like, no, 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 no. Let's slow down here. Yeah. No clean hands in a dirty world, buddy. How else are you going to fund? Uh- <laughs> yes. Uh, in fact, that's a, a, a moment from their uh, life story that isn't in the film, but is more sort of the most curb your enthusiasm moment in the history of the Marx-Engels friendship. Because for a long time, uh, they mostly corresponded through letters. They didn't, they didn't see each other very often because he was in Manchester and... and uh, Marx is on the continent or in London, and a lot of their letters are him asking for money. And there is a scene in the movie where creditors are literally at the door yelling at Jenny Marx, and Marx shows up with a bunch of lobsters and money for them, and it all came from a money order from Engels. But years later, after the course of this film, Mary Burns, his live-in uh, lover, who we meet in the film, died. And uh, Engels wrote a letter to Marx telling him how sad he was and how wrecked he felt that she was dead. And Marx responded with a letter that said, I'm very sorry to hear that. By the way, uh, if you could send me some more money, that'd be really great. <laughs> and that's the one time in their correspondence where Engels is palpably angry at him. Yeah. In the letter that he responds to her, he says, you are cold and unfeeling. And to think that all of you can you can manage to worry about is this money when when my, when my love of my life is dead. Uh but they patched it up. But that yeah. was that was the, like that was Marx at his most Larry David. Well, and it was kind of. I mean, it is Marx really did have like no fucking money. He did have no money. So there was. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have any pirate treasure. Yeah, according to some insane conspiracy theories that some people think are mind blowing. He had pirate treasure. There's <laughs> there's this idiot thing that that literally comes from like the. John Birch Society in the 50s. Oh, hell yeah. This theory that Marx got a bunch of uh, slave-based pirate treasure from Jean Lafitte's family uh, to help uh, fund the Communist Manifesto. Those those famous uh, communist partisans, the privateers. Yeah. But still, no, he was poor the whole time, and he really depended on Engels. And you see the beginning of that relationship. Yeah. But it's and Engels most, did have a, have a pretty good life. He um, did. Yeah. He was he, also like very like, I mean, he was much more bourgeois than Marx, it, not just in sort of the money sense, but in terms of values. He had like the free love thing, huge partier. I think his, his son-in-law or somebody, I can't remember how many kids Engels fathered, uh, but it, they referred to him as the great beheader of champagne bottles. Um, he, he was he, po- bottles and models, baby. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Marx uh, was much more staid. He was much more classic middle class. Marx was a family class. man. Classic middle class family man, mm-hmm. knock up the maid, knock That's up just, the maid. Yeah, that is, he really was sort of the picture of a nineteenth century gentleman in that way. Whereas, whereas, Mar- whereas Engels much more had the sort of bohemian style of yeah. yeah I got I, I I live with two Irish sisters. I do what I want. I'm not marrying anybody. Yeah, just having kids. I think he did. Uh, did he refer to Mary Burns as his wife? He did, but I don't that, think they were ever actually married. I don't think married. they were actually. He married. would say it to sort yeah. of. Not scandalize people, yeah. but he, they never actually got married. She didn't believe I, in marriage either. So I she am was a glad radical in her own they right. included. Uh, yeah, she didn't believe it. Um, I am glad they included Mary Burns and Jenny Marks, and I'm very kind of anti the sort of revisionist history stuff. I think Mary Beard has the correct line about this, where she said there were no Amazons, there was no matriarchy. That in itself is a male fantasy. However, Jenny Marks and Mary Beard were incredibly influential to the the history of socialist thought to communism. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't even... I, I They did make a few jokes where, like, no one could read Marx's handwriting. Yes, he lost jobs. He tried to get jobs with the railroad like the post and the office, post office. And they're like, we can't read And he read couldn't get the gig because yeah. nobody could read his goddamn scribbles. So, like, literally in in a, 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 a an administrative capacity, Jenny Marx was incredibly important. And as a, as a labor activist, uh, Mary Burns was incredibly important. Yes. And there is... As a thinker. Yes. And they have that, they have that moment that's another sort of comedic high point where they're on the beach... And they're talking, and Jenny and uh, Jenny and Mary are watching as Marx and Engels are sort of struggling. Growing out. Whether, whether there, there's sort of, it seems, I don't know how true this is, but there's, I think they invented this for drama. Is It's like 48, it's, it's, it's like beginning of 19, 1848, and they've, uh, Marx and Engels have basically wrested control of what was called the League of the Just, or Justice League, as we called yeah, it. Yeah, we call it Justice and League. And turn it into the We're Communist funny. League. Uh, <laughs> and 
were now tasked with writing a a short pamphlet for workers that laid out their program. And Marx is having a manifesto. Yeah, a manifesto, if you will. And Marx is having a crisis of faith where he's like, I'm tired. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Can and I, he can't can play bills. And, yeah, yeah. and Engels says, we've got to continue. You have to keep doing it. We got a communist. Yeah, we got, we a, got communist a communist harder up. than we've ever communist yeah. before. But while they're having this conversation, Mary and, and Jenny are sitting in their sitting on the beach, this hellish winds, windswept English beach. Yeah, one of these like horrible, shitty Northern European beaches yeah. where they're like, let's go on holiday. Yeah. Let's all just... let's all wear five layers of clothing and sit on Get a... freezing on a... wind, <laughs> sand whipped into our face <laughs> for a lovely beachside holiday. Sit on these awfully uncomfortable chairs next to <laughs> flapping tents and get grit in our faces. And they're talking about family and Mary Burns just says, yeah, I don't want to have kids. We're making sure of not having kids. And Jenny's like, really? You don't want kids? And then Mary says, yeah, if he wants kids, he can have them with my sister. She's dying for it. Yeah. <laughs> and she can almost see sort of the invisible monocle drop out of Jenny's eye. Yeah. Uh, so it is a very – so it's basically them fighting for control, becoming friends, fighting for control of these communist groups, yelling at all of the bad, dumb socialists – and then culminating with them deciding we're going to write the communist manifesto and and inter, inter, and along the way you see them writing several different things and having little mini montages of them writing yeah they're like the candles burning down montage, and they're yeah. sleeping on the desk and they're yeah. pacing back and forth classic stuff yeah so that is the that's and it and that that's that's the such as it is that's the arc uh it's not it's not very dramatic. We it's kind of, it's almost it perversely was, anti-dramatic. It was some weird choices because they weren't dramatic moments. Um, yeah. It, or or particularly salacious moments. There's a few like, yeah. you know, there's a few allusions to it. I, I We're both sort of confused as to why they picked the moments they did. But I don't know. I, I My, did enjoy it. I think um, what I think it was, was I think that they, I honestly think that this is a movie that is sort of like the big short in that it wanted to be didactic. And to be didactic and to teach the audience something, it wanted to package it, package it in a cinematic form that they recognize, so that it, so that the the, the lesson stuff sort of goes by mm-hmm. without being too difficult to digest. And this is classic period drama, you know, people in drawing rooms and all that stuff. And so along the way, the real point I think of the movie is the moments where they stop to sort of explain specific elements of Marxist theory. In the context of these dramatic moments. Yeah. Like when they go to a fancy club in London that Engels is a member of and they run into a factory worker or a factory owner. This was actually pretty good. Yeah. Like that's uh, a class. It's a good way of explaining like the concept of exploitation of labor. Right. Well, and, and in the confrontation, which I'm sure never happened, uh, they he asked him, it's like, how many children do you have working in your factory? And I thought what was good about that is that he was in no way defensive about it. He's like, oh, about half. Yeah. And they're like, mornings, nights, he's like, oh, both. Yeah. And it was like, um, he gave sort of the, the, at some point they pushed him into a justification. It was a little, I call it exploitation. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it is sort of important to be like, just so you know, people were definitely employing children and not even seeking to justify it mm-hmm. because they were just like, oh, well, we're giving them jobs. Yeah, if, if, if they don't, if, the, if they're not there to do it's it, it's not going to get done. how we build society, and if it doesn't yeah. get done, we have no economy. Right. I think we're much worse off. And the key moment in that for me in terms of, you know, because it's, it's incredibly easy, Dickens did it all the time, to just show how awful exploitation was at that time, yeah. how unjust it was. But the other thing was to say what the mechanism of it is, and that's where this differs from, you know, any kind of, like a like a an Oliver Twist adaptation or something is that Marx at the end of the scene says, "Oh, so this what this isn't to have an economy. This isn't to to make sure things are produced. This is to make sure that you have profit." Yeah, yeah. You are superfluous to this process. This this these people's misery is so that you can, without working, gain money. Right. And that is the that's the driving force of the class conflict that is irresolvable. And and the exploitation and misery that accompanies class conflict, and that is the 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 essential Marxist insight that I think the movie is trying to sort of show the birth of in the way these guys talk about it. It does seem like there were um, two audiences that they kind of had in mind. 
One was the person that's like, oh, Marx, communism, I kind of know about that. And then they, that, for, for those people, the, the most didactic moment would be, uh, would be that moment where he's confronting the, the capitalist factory yeah. owner. And then there are, I think, there's a leftist audience. Because um, Raul Peck is he's like the minister of culture, culture minister of, of Haiti. Haiti. Yes. Which, like, cool, but also weird, but also, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a country with, um, you know, a, a, let's say a, a Marxist history. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, to, to put it lightly. Um, and for leftists, I think the most interesting scene would be when they, when they go into the Justice League Friends meeting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are these um, kind of uh, liberal, kind of humanist type leanings that, yeah. that a lot of the crowd has. They, and they go from this all men are brothers to uh, workers of the world unite or something yes, like that. Yes, that was it. They're, this, it's that a little liter- they literally, and it's very good visual filmmaking. That when they yeah. come in, there's a banner on the wall that says "All Men Are Shit Brothers." Banner. Shit banner. Shit banner. Very boring banner. Poorly, very brown. Poorly done. Brown monochrome. And by and then Mar- Engels goes up and gives a speech. He reads some of Marx, of course. And then by the end of it, they've they carried take the day. Down the banner. They've won the vote. They take down that stupid banner and put up a big bright red one that's workers banner. of all beautiful. worlds of it's all gold. Unite. it's beautiful gorgeous yes we're gonna make it we're gonna make communism great again yeah and, the, <laughs> and, uh, and that that's like that is that switch from from the, the slogan all men are brothers to workers of the world unite is a perfect capsule yes explanation of the change in the socialist movement before an axe remark showed up yeah, because it really was a a movement of basically uh, it was of religious moral people. It was it a religious was, moral uh, sentiment. Yeah, to a actual analysis of economic conditions and what they create, and right. and then how to deal with those actual on the ground material realities. Yeah, and an understanding of of the the vehicles that would lead us to an egalitarian society. And um, this is a often misused word, but like praxis, like, okay, this yep. does have to be, this does have to be a, a workers movement. Yes. Um, so I think it was kind of two audience. And, and then I guess to some degree it was just for like history buffs yes. too, um, which for history buffs, I think, you know, you'll find some embellishments, but it's fun. Yeah. And, and you know, you Hey, there's Bakunin. Hey, there's Proudhon. <laughs> you know, those are fun moments. Yeah. It is what it is. It, it's a very odd choice. The ending is very anticlimactic. They decide. <laughs> they read. They they resolve on the beach to write the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Then they sh- show them read. There's a voiceover of the Communist Manifesto over pictures of workers, and then it just fades out. And then there's a title card saying, "Oh, and a month later, the revolutions of 1848 happened." And uh, then and the then, closing title. And then the they closing. cut to. They cut to the credits, and the song is like a Rolling Stone by <laughs> Bob Dylan. Billy. Which feels like there's like a placeholder. Like sometimes you're watching a movie. Like remember when we were watching uh, the last Marvel movie and they were talking about the boxes? Yeah, Justice League. Yeah. And, the uh, League of the Just. The League of the Just. And they and they and it was like they, they called it just like the box and they were like, okay, we're going to put this, we're going to highlight this, remember to write something yeah, later. we're going to not call it the box. But it would be stupid be if stupid. a three hour. We will come back to this. It would be stupid if this. Hundred billion dollar movie revolved around something we just called the, the box. box. At least in the Marvel the movies, the mother box. The the mother box. box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in the Marvel movies, it's called the Tesseract, which sounds vaguely sciency. Right. So I think the way they were going to close it, they were like they they had like a little card that said "put ending here," and then they played some yeah. Bob Dylan yeah. for some reason to make it seem contemporary, which I yeah. don't think needed to happen. Yeah. I I do think that kind of. Spoon feeds people when they're like, okay, we're going to add one contemporary pop yeah. song at the end. They want to be like, this is still relevant to you. Although, if it was, you really wanted it to be relevant to people, wouldn't it be Kanye or something? I mean, yeah. Bob Dylan is like 50 years old. I think they point. also could have, I mean, if they really wanted to do it, they could just show like workers now. They could just show like Bangladeshi garment yeah. workers <laughs> or like, yeah. you know. Like a greeter at Walmart. Yeah. In a, in a, uh, one, of, one of those slave uh, shrimp boats in, in uh, the Southeast Asia. You could show tomato pickers in yeah. fucking Florida. Anything. But yeah. It, yeah. If you really want to break through the, the sort of the period, you got to do something. Yeah. You had to be a little more bold than they were willing to be. Yeah. Picking Bob Dylan is the least, it's the lowest effort attempt yeah, to yeah, try yeah. to contemporize that you could have. I think uh, as far as movies goes, uh, hi- history buffs will like it. Uh, 
it, it would be good for libs and it's fun but easy for leftists. Yeah, because there are moments where you're like, oh, I know what's yeah. happening now. This is going to oh, be bad. I know this part. Uh, I will say it was sort of, it's a little disingenuous in the closing credits because they sort of imply that the Communist Manifesto was the spark that caused the 1848 revolution. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not true at all. There was a, a whole bunch of formant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I would, so. But I do think it was worth, and they, they mentioned this a few times, is that the whole of, of Europe uh, was in a massive upheaval yes. at the time. Oh, yeah. And the way they discussed it, they really thought, and you'll see this multiple times in history you, you saw it in the 60s you saw it to a lesser degree during occupy is that people are like oh everything's happening all at once the whole world is churning something's going to happen and then and marx was one of them yeah Marx yeah. was absolutely convinced that 48 was going to be the end of capitalism and then when yep. it didn't happen then the next economic uh downturn which was the real precipitant cause of the 1848 revolutions the next time there was a depression it was going to be that time yeah, yeah and it took him a while and that's and really when that didn't happen is when capital he starts writing capital yeah he's like okay we're in this for the long haul yeah we need a much more comprehensive understanding of what this mechanism is called capitalism if we're going to deal with it because mm-hmm. the big push the big collapse is not on the cards but right in 48 they thought it was going to be so the one thing to end this discussion of the movie uh i guess the thing i was thinking watching the movie is what other movie about a time in Marx's life would you like to see instead of this weird period when they're just writing and and uh, and hiding from butchers? I think it would have been um, I, I could have been like a, you know, all one day movie of the coup at the at Justice League. <laughs> the Justice League. Yeah, friends. we were talking about yeah. how that would be interesting. The, that would be the, the most interesting thing I think for a leftist. Yeah, if it was just about the the factional maneuvering that went into taking over the Justice. It would be League, a highly political, Justice, yeah, and procedure. turning into the communist. Actually, League. you know who would be good at directing that? Armando Iannucci. That's true. Because uh, it's about the office politics of yeah. real politics. And the other the other ones I thought would be interesting is young Marx. Go take that title seriously. Go really young Marx. Go when he was basically John Belushi in Animal House at the yeah. University of Bonn. Yeah. Because his first college stint was at the University of Bonn where he was forced to leave. His dad made him go to Berlin because he was gaming. only drinking and <laughs> dueling and shooting out streetlights with blunderbusses. He was just, so, he was just, just knockout a, gaming. Yeah, he was just, just a movie out. <laughs> where Marx is just a shithead college student. That would have been kind of funny. But uh, the Marx other one. screaming food fight. Yeah, yes. Uh, but then, and then it ends with him like running into Heigl and just is like, oh shit. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Uh, and the other one would be, so the other one would be on the other side of this period they chose, which would be the one time that Marx actually was in the middle of revolutionary ferment was during the 1848 revolutions shortly, right after the movie ends, he went, uh, back from Brussels to Germany, to Cologne, Germany, which was in ferment and uh, uh, in rebellion against Prussian rule. And he started a new newspaper with a bunch of other radicals. Engels actually went down to where there was street fighting, fought on the barricades. He actually got kicked off the barricades because the barricades had German flags up and he went out by himself without anybody's authorization and replaced them with red flags (laughs) and people's, the red flag of social revolution. That would be so cinematic. And then they're like, dude, you're freaking out the squares. You're freaking out the liberals, which because it was the 48 revolution was at that point a, 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 an alliance between workers and libs. And then the libs were freaked out by the red flag. And he yeah. just goes there and puts it up. And they're like, Get the that would on. be an amazing. And then he was yeah. there was actual set piece battle between these these southern German revolutionaries and the Prussian army. Uh, and my guy, the guy I talked about uh, my uh, first uh, drunk history art, uh, episode, August Willich, commanded unit fighting the Prussian army and Engels was his adjutant. He was his first and his, his, his second in command. Mm. So like you would have had actual action involved, which would have been cool. Uh, but I think the budget issues would have been constraining in that case. Well, that's but, just why we need, we need a, a planned economy that can make many Marx movies. Yes, exactly. Take all the money that went into the Transformers films and make them about make, Marx. We can make like eight good Marx movies Absolutely. for one Transformers budget. Yes, or one insane Marx movie <laughs> that costs a billion Marx and Engels combine yes. to make a... Yeah. They turn into a communist Voltron that shoots lasers at Bakunin. Prut- yeah, Proudhon is Mothra, Bakunin is... is uh, oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's Gamera, friend yeah. of the children. Yeah. <laughs> he was shaped like Gamera, actually. <laughs> he was. Okay, so 
that was from one end of the emergence of uh, of socialism and communist thought to another. The other movie we're talking about today is the film that is just in theaters here in New York uh, after having run in England uh, last year, Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. So before we go into this, I do want to say that it is worth talking about the actual legacy of uh, Soviet and communist and socialist states. Um, so I do want to actually read this thing from an economist, Bronco Milanovic. He's most famous for something called the elephant graph. He talks about growth and um, inequality, and um, I, I think he's a very interesting uh, economist. He also might be the most uh, romantically minded economist <laughs> I've ever, which is not you know saying much, but but he wrote something in a blog post where he mostly writes about global inequality and growth um but if you want to look it up bronco milanovic um it's called how i lost my past and it was right after uh brexit and trump and i just want to read a little bit by the way he he grew up in yugoslavia uh in almost all recent literature that analyzes brexit and trump entry there is a constant theme of a fall from the heady days at the end of the Cold War, of pining for a time when unstoppable victory of democracy and neoliberal economics was a certainty, and liberal capitalism stood at the pinnacle of human achievement. Such narratives always filled me with discomfort. It is in part because I never believed in them, and because my personal experience was quite different. Rather than believing in the end of history, I saw the end of the Cold War as an ambivalent event. Good for many people because it brought them national liberation, the promise of better living standards, but traumatic for others because it brought them the rise of vicious nationalism, wars, unemployment, and disastrous declines in income. I know that I was influenced in that by a very clear realization that once the Berlin Wall fell, the civil war in Yugoslavia was inevitable. I still remember a rather somber dinner that I shared with my mother on that day in November. And by firsthand experience of sudden misery that befell Russia in the early 1990s when I traveled there working for the World Bank. So I was aware that my discomfort with triumphalism could be explained by these two rarely found together circumstances. It was perhaps an idiosyncratic comfort. But reading other books and especially highly acclaimed Tony Jute, I realized that the discomfort went further. The deluge of literature that was written or published after the end of the Cold War I just could not find almost anything that mirrored my own experiences from the Yugoslavia of the 60s and 70s. However hard I tried, I could not see anything in my memories that had to deal with collectivization, killings, political trials, endless bread lines, imprisoned three thinkers, and other stories that are currently published in literary magazine. It is even stranger because I was very politically precocious. Without exaggeration, I think I was more politically minded than 99% of my peers in the then Yugoslavia. But my memories of the 1960s and 70s are different. I remember long dinners discussing politics, women, and nations, long summer vacations, foreign travel, language subsets, whole night concerts, epic soccer games, girls in miniskirts, the smell of the new apartment in which my family moved, excitement of new books and of buying my favorite weekly on the evening before the day when it would hit the stands. I cannot find any of that in Jutz, Svetlana, Alexevich, or any other writer. I know that some of the memories may be influenced by nostalgia, but as hard as I try, I still find them as my dominant memories. I remember too many details of each of them to believe that my nostalgia is somehow fabricated. I cannot say they did not happen. So I think the death of Stalin portrayed a sort of moment in time. It's a slapstick comedy. I don't want you to think that any of us are... Um, I don't know what you would call it, like uh, 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 these deranged uh, Shaktmanite revisionists or whatever. <laughs> I, I think the the decline of Soviet and communist states was a net negative for the world. However, this was like a really great movie and there was some horrible brutality <laughs> in the Soviet Union. And I think Inucci did a great job of, of portraying that with comedy. Yes. Um, it's really interesting because it it's the same sort of insight that he has brought to all of his stuff about politics but before now which is that in the real crucible of power the only people who really thrive are entirely cynical or completely weak mm -hmm. anybody with any kind of moral fortitude uh or or principles or anything is going to get pulped out one sooner or later leaving just people who will go along to get along 
out of fear or out of self-interest. And in this other films and TV shows, the stakes are a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Like the worst thing that's going to happen to somebody in the thick of it or in the loop or whatever or veep, they might get humiliated publicly and they might have to take a private sector job. You mm-hmm. know? Whereas here he's taking that same insight into the inner workings of Stalin's uh, presidium where if you fuck up, you will fucking get killed. Yeah. And all of these guys have survived 20 years under Stalin and as such are anybody who had any real principles has gotten sort of ground out of the system by then. And all you had left are survivors. And when he dies, they set about trying to overthrow one another and, and, and gain any kind of advantage in the system that is now bereft of sort of the figure that had held it together that whole time. Uh, but that gives so it has his comedy, but it's much darker than his other movies because the stakes are so much higher. I would say to go into it knowing that it's not about politics. It's about office politics. Yeah. So please don't like, yeah, that's not what really happened. It's a fucking slapstick comedy. Yeah. If you don't enjoy this, you're not a leftist. You're just a boring asshole. Yeah, it's very it's very amusing. Uh, the, the caricatures of the different leaders are very interesting. Oh my God, it's great. Uh, all the, the performances choices were, really good. were yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah. So like one of the things we we're talking about were like um, the accents uh, that they used. They didn't try and make everyone speak in a Russian accent. I think one person, like a Russian pianist, has a has a Russian accent, and she is actually Russian. Jeffrey Tambor talks like Jeffrey Tambor. Yep. Steve Buscemi has that like little quick talk in New York accent. Yeah. Um. Uh. I think the only person who actually like puts on an accent is Jason Isaacs, who's actually from the north of England, but goes for a different north of England. To he go, he put, does a Yorkshire accent as, to play as Zukov. <laughs> Zukov. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fucking hilarious. It's very funny, and and, and it's it's it, it's it's pretty much. I mean, you could kind of say. I got He's the entire the Red Army. <laughs> the idea, I mean, you can sort of see the, the, so the parochial uh, British mindset behind that choice is that these guys are all a bunch of pencil necks and Zukov's an actual soldier. He's like a yeah. jock amongst a bunch an of, cla- jock, yeah. you know, teacher's pets. You know, these guys were all kissing Stalin's ass yeah. in, in an office when he was, you know, rolling into Berlin. So he's sort of the alpha dude. So he's got the most virile British accent there is, which yeah. is the northern one. Yeah, because yeah. the northerners are the real men of England. Pretty so, much. So that's why he sort of bursts in and he's got he sort of has to have that he's the cape. And he's got this just yeah. comically huge array of, <laughs> of, of medals on his chest. The comedy uh, in it is almost like um like harkens back to another era. It's very which way did he go kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Like there's a scene where Stalin dies in there. Uh, Keep avoiding the piss. Yeah, yes, he's like he fall, he dies in in his own he, or he collapses in his own uh, in his own urine in uh, in his office, and everybody comes one after the other. All the members of the presidium come to kneel by him reverently, and one and by one they f- find out that there's f- piss there. F- and fake their to, panic too, and yeah. they're and they're grieving and mourning when actually they're they're feeling nothing but terror. Yeah, it's 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 very fascinating because they're all thrilled secretly at the prospect of him being dead and maybe uh rising in a position or taking power but also or, terrified or that he'd get better yeah um yeah and also at the very uh, like some of them really did want uh a more liberal shall we say yeah. uh, soviet union a less authoritarian so they're like this could signify regime change there was uh, i think i think there was legitimate um desire for that uh in in um his cabinet yeah uh but also people were power hungry they were petty yeah i think that's the main the main it is a very cynical film like all of the Inucci stuff and it really doesn't have a lot insightful to say other than people as they get closer to power they get less human essentially yeah uh because even when they when i mean when people are wanting to liberalize it's it I mean, if you're a communist and you think it's bad that they liberalize or you are, you know, a lib or, or anti-authoritarian, whatever that means, and you think it's good that they did, either way, it's not presented as them doing it out of principle. They're doing it because they think that that will make – have them a stronger public position to, to – right. vis-a-vis their rivals. I mean, the guy the, – the, the main, the main uh, uh, sort of vector for that is Beria, who exactly. was the most – yes repulsive, violent, exploitative. Beria was the single worst figure of Stalin's entire reign. He was. And and this is really, 
I was surprised at how explicit they were about this in an ostensible comedy is the movie makes pains to point out that he was a serial rapist. Yes. He would basically select women at random in Moscow and then have the NKVD bring them to him. Yeah. And they show that several times, that process of that happening in the movie. And he is just a grotesquely monstrous figure. But also, after Stalin died, a point man in wanting to liberalize things. But specifically so that it would endear him to the people. Exactly, yes. Uh, and it's, uh, so the movie radically contracts the time frame of the struggle between Barry and Khrushchev and those guys. It all happens basically within two or three days of Stalin's death. In real life, it was the better part of the year 1953 from yeah. Stalin's death in March until the ex- – spoiler alert, but come on <laughs> – Barry's execution in December. Uh, and there was a period – that there, there was actually a several-month period where there was sort of a triumvirate with, Mal, uh, with uh, Beria and uh, – uh, uh, Georgie Malenkoff played hilariously by Jeffrey Tambor as just he does amazing job as the other sort of person you have a a, a, mo- a genuine monster like Beria mm-hmm. and then Steve Buscemi plays Khrushchev as not necessarily an evil person but a very self-centered a, uh, a practical a minded pragmatist. person but not uh, uh, no like streak of sadism yeah exactly yeah. not a sadist but certainly not anyone yeah. with any kind of real values yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just somebody who is in proximity of power and wants more of it uh, so he's it's sort of uh, you get the sliding scale and on one end you have the absolute monster in Beria, and then you have the the less sadistic but still hard-nosed uh, cynic in Khrushchev and then Malenkov who is an absolute who's survived basically by not having a spine or a will, or anything that would even make him a threat to Stalin, even in any kind of yeah, they plausible these, sense. They they have these jokes where like Steve Buscemi goes home and reads everything he said to Stalin to his wife, and she takes notes. He's like, he didn't laugh at this joke. She didn't. He, he did laugh at this joke, and she's like, no more navy jokes. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. Me- yeah. Meanwhile, Malenkov just or Jeffrey Tambor's Malenkov will just blunderingly say, "Hey, what happened to that guy?" During a conversation yeah, with Stalin, kind of guileless, and it's like, dude, we all know what happened to that guy, but he's never really in danger because he's just not a threat to anyone yeah, on earth. He's pretty hapless. Yeah. But so he was—he's uh, Beria sort of propped him up uh, for several months in mid 1953 before uh, he was overthrown, and on a platform of liberalization. In fact, uh, one of the one of the some sources claimed that Beria was actually looking to basically be uh, the Soviet Union's. Yeltsin in the 50s in that he was willing to basically end the Cold War and undivide Germany in exchange for American aid. Mm. So he would have been like the hero of the 20th century, according to American yeah. narratives of the of the of the Soviet Union. And yeah. he was well, like without Milanovic question the says, most like history monstrous, is written by the winners. Yeah, and the most he would have mon- been. Yeah. Yeah. The most monstrous person who ever had a position of power in the Soviet Union. But he would have, we would have loved him if he'd done that. He would mm-hmm. have been Time Magazine's Man of the Year for decades to come. Uh, but he got he got owned by Khrushchev. Spoiler alert! Yeah, owned alert. super hard. But yeah, it's very funny. Uh, I I I I'm, I I wouldn't say that I would want to change anybody in it. But Buscem, I enjoyed Buscemi's Khrushchev, but it really just it pained me seeing it, knowing that there's another movie that was apparently supposed to be made on HBO. I just remember reading about it years ago. It was going to be based on a book called K Blows Top, which was a historical uh, nonfiction book that, reti- re- that recounted Khrushchev's trip to the United States in the 50s. He did a cross-country tour of the United States that was a huge deal. And it culminated with him in Los Angeles, and he requested to go to Disneyland. <laughs> and... They refused because they couldn't accommodate the security that would have been required to have him go while there were, you know, however many people visiting it. And he flipped out and he started screaming. And there was a headline of a newspaper that said, K blows top. And it was about him losing his shit because he didn't go to Disneyland. And this movie got optioned by HBO and it was going to have Paul Giamatti. Oh, my as God. As Khrushchev. Oh, my God. And when I heard that, the idea of Paul Giamatti as Khrushchev, it has haunted me ever since as the most perfect casting on earth because I love Buscemi in this movie, but he is very sharp. He's angular. You don't buy that he's fat, even though they kind of put padding on him. He's yeah, got like a pu- they, they gave him a pug nose, yeah. prosthesis that's yeah. not very convincing. And I just, 
Khrushchev was a round boy. He's a round boy. Give me Guillaume. treats. I want. Yeah, he was a round treat boy, holding up the corn can, the the corn cob. And I would have <laughs> wanted. I mean, imagine Giamatti yelling, "We will bury you with a fucking shoe in his hand." Yeah, it was too. It's too perfect. It has yeah. to happen. So somebody in Hollywood make something where Giamatti gets to be fucking Khrushchev. Okay, it's, that does need to happen. But I gotta say, the one of the highlights for this movie for me was that it is. It has a fail son. It has yes. an amazing fail son performance. <laughs> Vasily Stalin, a, le- a one of the 20th century's great, great greatest fail son. son. Yeah, uh, yeah, Hall he, of Famer. He was, uh, and and the thing is, it's another one where they didn't really have to stretch the truth too much. No, uh, there's a story in the film that uh, is based really on reality, real. <laughs> where he was he was like the like the Hussein brothers. He was put in charge of the olympic hockey team and he insisted on the team flying in adverse weather conditions and the entire team was wiped out in a plane crash and <laughs> he tried to keep it uh secret and basically restock the team Replace without them. noticing uh but yeah he was also a huge alcoholic and uh big and mess big embarrassing total mess. i think they had to keep him like yeah. out of public yeah eyes. he was not they allowed to give him things to keep him busy yeah, yeah they gave him rubik's the first rubik's cube was invented to keep vasily or vasily stalin uh busy <laughs> it was like here i invented this thing he'll be in the room for hours now we don't have to worry about him yeah but yeah aesthetically also great um the it worked very well for the style of comedy the the scene in the during the actual funeral procession when the they invite the clergy yes. in as a as a you know Beria does it as an underhanded move to be seen as as, as liberalizing but it's it's totally cynical yeah. it's to you know and get, get a leg up and yeah. they're all standing there around the coffin trying to argue who about invited it without, the bishops without anyone yeah. telling Michael Palin, we didn't talk about him. He oh my plays uh, Molotov. Absolute treasure, too. Uh, and he really embodies sort of the way that trying to keep the party line straight in your head mm-hmm. would basically drive you insane. A man dedicated to internal consistency will always go mad. Yes. And it's, it, he's, he's a character who, who is asked first to agree that his wife, who had been arrested shortly before the movie begins was a traitor and deserved her fate and then when Beria who had not had her executed brings her back has to assimilate her not being guilty having mm-hmm. believed with all of his heart that she was guilty until the moment she showed back up in his life mm-hmm. uh and and his and how it basically made him unable to reason after a certain point like he yeah. couldn't think really anymore because well one of the interesting things about this that i thought was actually quite coy and if there i don't think there's any fucking politics to this so calm down you nerds it's a comedy movie uh it's it's not a left movie it's not a right movie it's a movie about fucking your dad <laughs> um but the one of the things is that you realize that the person um who's trying to create a, a more liberal slash less repressive society, the person who wants to release the prisoners, the person who, you know, gives Michael Palin his wife back in order to gain favor. Like, he's very much the bad guy. Yes. He's extremely the bad guy. Yeah. And he's only doing it because it, it serves his own his own power ambitions. Yeah. And he's also a sadistic freak. Yes. And, uh, and that leads to a very, very, very fascinating ending where... Beria, spoiler alert, but once again, come on. Yeah. Uh, is Where arrested and, and, and very quickly tried and, and, and executed. And it's very harrowing. Like, this is a guy who has been established as, as a total monster getting his comeuppance. But the scenes where he is uh, interrogated and, and, and executed. Suddenly, it is not a comedy. Are not funny. Yeah. Are, uh, are not even cathartic because as he's being beaten. Uh, he is pointing out that everyone who is in the process of condemning him had totally signed off mm-hmm. on as much blood and violence as he had in terms of repressions or whatever. And and there's no sense that this is righteousness so much as just another bureaucratic shuffle. It's very it's very intense. It's like a a beautiful break from the comedy where you're like. It's like waiting for a very necessary amputation. Yeah. <laughs> like you just really want it to hurry up and happen. Yeah. So um, yes, it's yeah. certainly not a left-wing movie. It's it's in the fine lib tradition of uh of British satire. Yeah. Uh, so you can enjoy it on those 
If you can go to a fucking Marvel movie and enjoy it, you should certainly be able to enjoy this. You and should put the be able to enjoy away. things. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, except video it's, games. It's about, it's about fucking your dad. It's about fucking your dad. But yes, except video games. <laughs> Don't enjoy those. Yeah. Um, it is a weird thing too. I think, you know, again, as someone who recognizes, uh, you know, the, the, dissolution and and crushing of of communism even as there are states that i would not personally like to live in as a as a net negative for the world like it is um a really good kind of snapshot to take Mm -hmm. because you could argue that the integrity of um the soviet union as as a coherent process really did kind of have to die with stalin Mm -hmm. i mean in terms of uh coordinating i mean I think at one point they had uh, Vasily Stalin, and this is, I think, the only reference they really gave to that. I mean, you have to think of the, so- the USSR as, as a huge collection of totally different places. We think of it as Russians. Mm-hmm. But he starts saying, we are, we are all ab- orphaned cubs. We are Armenian cubs. We are Russian cubs. Mm-hmm. And he starts listing all of these like highly disparate uh, ethnic groups and regions that I don't even know if prior to the USSR you could define them as, as concrete states mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, it's like this huge, massive, unifying project. And what do you do after that? What do you do after the guy who did that is gone? Yeah. And there's some unpopular policies in place. People people were not pleased with the, the amount of, of repression a lot of times. Yeah. So... I mean, liberalization would make sense if you were a political strategist to be like, okay, let's let's loosen the reins a little bit. Yeah. So uh, they'll they'll have something to welcome, you yeah. know, because and- once he's gone, if I mean the, the entire the entire uh, country, the entire empire uh, would just could theoretically be in you know total chaos in the absence of stalin one little thing and people are like well stalin's gone i mean people were always attempting coups and shit anyway yeah and in in his 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 status as 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 the sort of the the constant thing that kept it all together through especially throughout world war ii mm-hmm. is such and uh is is testified to the fact that when he died People flooded Moscow mm-hmm. from around the country to see him. And uh, the movie has a fictionalized moment where the end of KVD opened fire on this, this crowd of uh, mourners. But uh, in reality, hundreds of people did die in mm-hmm. just getting crushed in massive yeah. herds of people coming people to Moscow. People wanted to see Comrade people, Stalin. They needed to see him because he was sort of the one stable principle throughout their entire lives. And you just think about it, though. It really was such a small number of people in charge of, like, the biggest country by landmass in the world. Yeah. A, 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 a melting pot or whatever. Um, it, at least as diverse as the United States of, you know, formerly uh, disparate uh, states and regions. I mean, what fucking chaos? What, like, a an absolutely chaotic historical moment and it really lasted for like a year. Yeah. Um, but it was still like it was in the hands of what, like eight to twelve people. Yeah. And that really, and it did start the centrifugal force of sort of the edges sort of pulling away, which really did more than anything, I think, end the Soviet Union in mm-hmm. the eighties, and uh, was was those the pull from the from the edges from the nations. Yeah. From the from the from the subsidiary states that started reawakening nationalism and and uh like in the absence of that who knows the 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 soviet union could have survived in another form but with with those defections from the edges of it it kind of lost its it completely lost its coherence Mm. and you could argue that that kind of started as soon as stalin died yeah i mean i think it was a pivotal moment i mean i'm not a huge fan of the sort of great man theory of history or whatever but like there are incredibly powerful personalities that that do cohere moments, and S- Stalin was a big one. I hate to, I'm not horseshoe theorying it, but like <laughs> Stalin and Hitler, they were like big deals. They were. Warn you till I join you, homeboys. <laughs> um, yeah, but also just like great comedy. Ab- yeah, it's very funny. I can't actually remember the last time I was in a theater and like kind of consistently laughing because things aren't funny now. They're just like 
mocking the cadence of comedy and yeah. they're like this is a joke you will laugh and and you kind of agree to it because that's what you paid fifteen dollars to go to the theater for but i actually had some organic laughs in this yes real organic laughs yeah. Hi- hydroponic uh <laughs> indica laughs the real shit the realest the realest herb <laughs> okay uh well there we go there you go people have been asking for more for us christman here you go 18 months later and we'll see you all again uh, in about 18 months, I guess. Yep. That's when we'll see another movie. Yes. Until then, it's just going to be prestige television. <laughs> Bye-bye, folks. Bye.